0: Chris and Amy show on KMOX. Nate Gadder is in for Amy. I'm Chris Ranji. Good to have you with us today until one o'clock and it's time to go to the Quiver River Electric guest line. We are joined by friend of the show, Colonel Jeff McCausland, who can give us some insight on uh, things that are happening around the world. Uh, Colonel McCausland, it is good to talk to you again. How are you?
1: Doing well and hope you all had a great holiday. Uh
0: we did. We had a great holiday here, hoping the same for you. Let's um let's start things off by the news that the US um, initiated a couple of strikes in Iraq against Iranian backed targets. What exactly happened there and what will be the fallout from it?
1: Well what happened there is as you say airstrikes against a couple of targets. These are Shiite militia groups supported by Iran who have conducted numerous attacks against American military forces in both Iraq and Syria since this war in the Gaza Strip began back in, in uh, on the 7th of October. And sadly, in the last 24 to 36 hours, we know one of those strikes in northern Iraq near Erbil apparently injured at least three U.S. service personnel. At least one was critical. Uh, and as uh, in response, the United States <coughs> conducted an airstrike against areas where we believe these militia groups are operating, storing weapons and the like. One of the complications, of course, is this obviously raises the specter of growing confrontation between the United States and Iran, who does, in fact, support these groups, as I said. But it also actually complicates U.S. relations with Iraq. The U.S. forces that are in Iraq are there, nothing to do with the war in the Gaza Strip. They are actually a residual force still still seeking out and destroying any residual elements of ISIS from the conflict with ISIS some time ago. That's why they're there. They're there at the invitation or at least the agreement of the Iraqi government. But, in fact, the Iraqi government has protested these airstrikes as a violation of their sovereignty. The United States conducted these strikes without any permission from Iraq to do so. And there are also further reports that uh, some members of Iraqi security forces may have been involved in these attacks. Even a report suggesting at least one member of Iraqi security forces was killed in the U.S. retaliatory strike uh, and a number injured. And also in response to that, there apparently are widespread demonstrations. This has happened past in Baghdad against the United States for conducting airstrikes on Iraqi soil. There are critics um, of the president and this
0: administration who say that he's not doing enough to protect uh, American assets overseas. Should there be more? That's, that's being done here to prevent from, you know, like what happened here that we're talking about before?
1: Well, I think the Biden administration has tried to calibrate their response in an effort to avoid further escalation has been the big problem. Uh, obviously the possibility of escalation can, with Iran, as we just said a moment ago, over these strikes against our forces in Iraq and Syria, also at the same time cooperating with Iraq and not trying to, to mess up our relations there. And furthermore, we have not seen the United States respond yet militarily against Houthis down in Yemen who have conducted numerous uh, missile and drone attacks against commercial shipping and actually launched missiles uh, in the direction of Israel. And, and, of course, last but not least, the United States and the Biden administration has counseled the Israelis to be more surgical in their military operations in the Gaza Strip to use you know smaller levels of uh, airstrikes because of the massive amounts of civilian casualties that have been re- the result of this particular war. So that has been the goal. But at the same time, obviously, protection of U.S. forces is a major goal. And the subsequent strikes that we have done, now four or five in addition to one I just mentioned, against these Shiite groups in Iraq have not had the desired effect. It has not either destroyed them or destroyed their capabilities or deterred them from further strikes. So that specter of escalation, what you do next and trying to respond enough to get this to stop without pushing it over the edge into a major regional conflict that has been the tightrope I think the uh, Biden administration has been walking.
0: Colonel, you mentioned that these residual forces still in Iraq are there if not at the invitation at least with the agreement of the Iraqi government. If If the U.S. and Iraq have been able to work together sufficiently to provide for these residual forces to be there without any complaint on Iraq's part, why is it impractical then for the U.S. to try to be more proactive before a strike like this in getting permission or at least providing sufficient warning that maybe they could minimize the, the diplomatic fallout?
1: Yeah, I think quite candidly, the problem is the concern about the level of security of the strike. In other words... Uh, we know that these Iraqi uh, groups that are supported by Iran uh, permeate not only the military, but permeate the government. Several political parties that are very supportive of Iran and Iraq have been successful in, in recent elections. So there's a lot of support for Iran amongst that political structure. And as a consequence, consulting with or coordinating directly with the Iraqi government about a, planning for an airstrike might compromise the whole airstrike. Frankly, the target would disappear or more air defense would show up as your aircraft showed up. So I think that's the problem. But unfortunately, in the background, we worry that to involve them more in advance on an upcoming strike might compromise the whole effort. Visiting with Colonel Jeff McCausland
0: here on KMOX. Let's uh, shift to Gaza and what is happening there. So the Israeli airstrikes have continued. Um, We know that a refugee camp just recently, yesterday, in fact, it was um, that that about 100 people there were killed. As you look at the the ongoing conflict and how Israel has conducted the airstrikes and and appears to be expanding the ground campaign, what is your assessment of it overall?
1: Well, my assessment overall is sadly we've seen about 20,000. Palestinians have been killed since this war began, 50,000 have been injured, two-thirds of the population has been displaced. I think it's important to keep in mind that the use of military force is a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. And so therefore, you're using a capability of the military hopefully to shape conditions at the end which lead to greater stability and longer term peace and security for everybody. Unfortunately, I think this particular operation as it continues to grind on and destroy more infrastructure and kill more people is just kind of therefore leaving the possibility of achieving that end state, greater security, a lot, less likely, a lot less likely, if not impossible for them to achieve. And that's really the challenge Israelis have right now.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that sort of a theme to what we have been talking about on the show over the last couple of months, since October 7th, and, and since that, um, the air campaign began in, in the days after, the, the overall security for Israel is the biggest question here. Does this military campaign ultimately make them safer?
1: That remains to be seen. I mean, uh, I know that they contacted some of the people that conducted military operations or planned strategy for us during the surge in Iraq. And I know in one case, um, when they inquired with one of those guys who worked for Petraeus, he said to the Israelis, look, we tried to do two things. One, we tried to laser focus our military efforts in Iraq to destroy the leadership of those groups that opposed us but in a laser-like fashion, a lot of spec ops, a lot of very precise surgical airstrikes. While at the same time trying to find a political partner that we could work with to, over time, peel the population away from the terrorist group. And the Israelis do not seem to be interested in that particular effort. They've not entertained, I think, uh, any idea of what are they going to do the day after. What are they going to do the day after? Obviously, they're not going to deal with Hamas in a political way, but even the Palestinian Authority, they kind of dismissed that. And there's a lot of problems with using the Palestinian Authority as that political partner. But if you don't do that, then at the end of the conflict, even if you are successful, and I'm somewhat skeptical, they can be, frankly, in militarily destroying Hamas as a force, well, what do you do now? You you got 2.2 million people, you got an area that's totally destroyed, and you then have to occupy this to maintain control and and some basic rebuilding. The usual rule of thumb is about five to 20 soldiers per thousand, frankly, to control the population. That faces you if you're Israeli with about 50,000 troops in in the Gaza Strip for an interminable period of time, just occupying the place, not improving things, but just keeping it as it is at the end of the conflict. And that's hardly a recipe for long-term peace and security.
0: Let's shift over to Ukraine and uh, a recent claim by them that they destroyed a a Russian ship that um, they say is a very big deal for them Explain exactly what they've destroyed, uh, and I know Russia has said they've been attacked, but they have not claimed that there was total destruction of that ship. Um, so what exactly happened there, and what does it mean for Ukraine?
1: Yeah, what it means for Ukraine is Ukrainians, I think, are uh, changing, if will, their, their strategic approach. Their counteroffensive on the ground has kind of ground to a stalemate. They had some marginal success. Russians have had some subsequent marginal success in the northern part of the Donbass region. But really, that particular ground operation is pretty much at a stalemate as the winter comes on. Uh, having used the forces that they accrued from us and the West to conduct that counteroffensive, lost a lot of people and equipment, Hard for me to imagine that they're going to have the wherewithal to conduct a major counteroffensive any time, probably even in 2024. So it'll be a rebuilding time for them. So as a counter... They're refocusing their attention on partisan activity behind the lines, on special operations attacks, uh, and particularly on uh, naval activities, oddly enough, even though they don't have a navy, uh, using drones and missiles to make the situation for the Black Sea Fleet and those particular naval elements in Crimea pretty untenable. And as a result, the Russians have had to withdraw a lot of their naval forces and move them back to Russian ports to the east. The Ukrainians have always already been able to re- reopen a corridor along the very, very western coastline of the Black Sea to actually begin shipping grain out. So this has been a pretty significant success for them, I think. And this striking this particular ship is just part and parcel of that overall effort. What happens, and maybe the more important
0: question is, why is it important for the United States to continue to fund Ukraine? Because as you know, there has been less and less support for that as
1: time has gone on. Yeah, I think there's really, I would argue, three overarching major reasons. Reason number one, I think, is a moral reason. I mean, what we have witnessed is an aggressor state, the Russian Federation, with an unprovoked attack against a smaller state for no particular provocation whatsoever. Those are all trumped up reasons, Mr. Putin argues, should do that. Talking about it being run by Nazis, and I mean, to goodness the president's Jewish, for goodness sake. And in the course of conducting that particular attack, that aggressive attack, has killed thousands and thousands of Ukrainian civilians, children, women. has conducted missile strikes against infrastructure, apartment houses, hospitals, etc. and if we value or if we have any sense of morality, it would seem to be we want to be on the right side of that. Second, the United States, we talk about values, freedom, justice, democracy and standing up for those things. Well, clearly Ukraine is an imperfect democracy, there's no two ways about that, but I think they're making a real earnest attempt to move in that direction. That's hardly what we're seeing in the Russian Federation. So if we stick up for those things, then we should stick up for them, I think, in the process. And then lastly, but perhaps even more importantly, geopolitically. Geopolitically, can anybody possibly imagine that if Mr. Putin was successful today in securing his objectives in Ukraine, then he would stop there? I mean, can you possibly imagine that? If you listen to what he says about Ruskimir, which means Russian world, that all Russians should live in the Russian Federation, and you were uh, living in Poland or the Baltic Republics or Moldova or some other place, you wouldn't worry that you were next on his hit list, just like Adolf Hitler was not satisfied with half of Czechoslovakia back in the 1930s. And finally, I mean, in that particular vein, Uh, I always point out the Japanese prime minister who visited Kiev one time a few months ago standing next to Zelensky publicly said, if you really are interested in deterring aggression by China in the Pacific, then you have to be successful in the war in Ukraine. And ultimately, I think if we fail in doing so, we will rue that day. It won't only be the destruction of Ukraine, this could really bring on ultimately the destruction of NATO and bigger problems for the United States in the future.
0: Colonel Jeff McCausland, we always appreciate your time. Thank you for speaking with us today and and, uh, have a great holiday. You too